This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Almost Heretical. Tim uh, wanted to talk to me. He sent me a text saying, I think we should start talking about Leviticus slash atonement slash cosmic decontamination uh, slash the other day he called it cosmic insulation. And so I Googled that. Uh, And it's a fun Google if you Google cosmic insulation. What came back for me was basically just like bubble wrap, thermal bubble wrap that you can wrap like pipes with and stuff like that. So I have no clue what we're talking about this week. I am just as lost as you. And I'll be honest, Tim, this sounds pretty boring. This sounds like uh, a lecture at a Bible school that I wouldn't have taken. (laughs) So why is this interesting? Tell me why this is interesting. How's this going to change our lives? Because it'll be like 15 weeks of lectures that you wouldn't have taken. But while you're there, you'll make great friends. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not going to let him do 15 episodes. (laughs) Okay. Okay. No, but seriously, you, you told me we're talking about Leviticus atonement. That kind of sounds interesting. Our most listened to episode of all time is about atonement with Mako Nagasawa. But cosmic decontamination. I mean, that sounds like, you know, when you enter the the lock before you get into like the spacecraft, they, they lock the first door and then there's like that little cleaning, sucking the air out. Too. I don't even know what they're doing. <laughs> and then you go into the, you can actually go into the spacecraft. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. So, okay, so we're going to start a new series. It's going to be sort of this ongoing set of conversations um, that will probably break up with lots of other shows. But essentially, I've been working on a pet project for the last couple years. Uh, And then especially, um, I don't know, starting end of last year, I really... Felt like I started to see some stuff. Um, But basically, I've mentioned on the show, I've, I've sort of had a had a background project of trying to understand the book of Leviticus just because it is so weird, so different, so foreign um, and difficult to understand. And yet there is lots of scholarship on it. But then uh, I can't remember if I, I know I talked to you about it and I can't remember if I showed on the podcast when we did do our, our little mini series on atonement. Right. So we had the conversation with, with Mako talking about, uh, thinking about the cross as, in Mako's term, medical substitution, uh, where the primary metaphor is that we are sick and God wants to heal us, right? Humanity is is sick, so God's a good a good doctor trying to heal, yeah. and and that being a <laughs> a good replacement for the penal substitutionary model, where God is essentially a uh, an angry uh, attorney or judge and, uh, and is enacting a retributive punishment on us. But then we did the other episode, which was, uh, which was laying out nine or 10 different metaphors. Uh, most all you can point to a few places in, uh, in the Bible and see people talking about the cross using one of these metaphors um, so Christus Victor and liberation and ransom theory, all that stuff and use the metaphor of, uh, Scott McKnight was where I heard this, but the metaphor of, uh, a bag of golf clubs and there's no one theory, one biblical theory of the atonement. You basically have a, a bag of metaphors or analogies used to understand what Jesus did and, and why it matters. 
And so that one episode, if, if you don't remember it or you didn't listen to it, go back and, and listen to those two episodes on atonement. But one was just trying to lay out, here are a bunch of different ways to think about this thing. And uh, I remember talking to you, I can't remember if it was in the episode, of saying, uh, I have had a sort of, um, back then it was an inkling, now I'm, I'm pretty convinced that there is a whole world of background information that we have missed, most of us have missed uh, for a long time, in how the biblical writers, uh, especially those who, who put together the Pentateuch, were thinking about the world and humans and God and bodies and blood and space and all of those things that... Wait, hold on. Are you saying that you think... You haven't seen someone else talking about this before? Uh, yes. Is this a Timmy original? Is this a new track? <laughs> yes and no. So what, to answer that question and the why, why this matters question. So what I want to lay out, and we'll take some time to walk through it, is going through Old Testament, the Levitical system uh, specifically, that'll be or the centerpiece at least, what blood was doing, why the killing of animals, why these sacrifices, what the temple was for, um, and try to get behind uh, the text to see what the authors believed about the world. Um, and, And in the process, I will be quoting some known scholarship on Leviticus Uh, But then I'll also be building off of that. And so essentially, if I were doing this the way normal professional uh, academics would, I would be uh, building my arguments in academic journals, submitting them for peer review. And then after those articles were reviewed, I'd basically compile all my research into a book on Leviticus or a book on a, a topic and uh, and submit that to peer review. So instead, <laughs> I have uh, a theory on the Levitical system and what it was doing and how it worked and what atonement was that I have never heard anybody say. Um, but I have heard some scholars uh, in recent years get get closer to what I'm thinking, and they're the scholars that helped me sort of get here. So it's not like I'm just some brilliant guy who came up with all this on my own. I basically just want to add a little something to what some of the um, the well-known Old Testament and uh, especially Levitical scholars have done. So even that term, Nate, uh, cosmic decontamination, as weird as that is to us, that there are circles of scholarship in which that's a, a phrase that means something. <laughs> uh, and largely... Uh, one of the most famous Leviticus scholars ever uh, was a man named Jacob Milgram. And he, he, his scholarship has been out there for a long time. Most evangelicals have completely ignored him. Um, we'll get into some of the scholarship later, but he was one of the first ones to really put a, a pretty dang solid argument out there that uh, guilt and forgiveness was was not the centerpiece of the whole priesthood system or what what Israel was trying to accomplish with the temple um, and laid a whole bunch of new groundwork for what the thing was doing. And essentially one way of summing it up was that 
it was a it was a system based on this idea of purity and people needed to be decontaminated and so what the temple was doing was was ritually decontaminating people okay hold on you're saying that's that's this new view that you're going to that's a summary of the new view you're going to present what would you say is a summary of the the view that you think most people have about leviticus other than just it's boring it's where i ended my bible reading plan you know, that type of stuff. Like, what would you say is the general, just most people sitting in a church, like, what do they think about Leviticus? Actually, uh, I wanted to, to ask you that question. Don't turn it on. Me. <laughs> I thought for this intro, uh, what do you think? Even for you, you know, like you said, you don't know. It's law. It's, it's a law. It's the book of laws. And I just assume most of them don't apply to us today. Yeah. So it's, it's for them, but there's stuff we can glean from it. Like, I think that's what I always sort of thought about. Leviticus. But I, but you said something. The reason I wanted to ask is because you said something about how you see, I think, it being tied to this guilt and forgiveness theme that I think is still where a lot of people get stuck. Even if you're not saying Leviticus, you know, all the laws apply to us or whatever, which I think, you know, most people, even like in the Reformed camp or whatever, wouldn't say that. But they, they still would draw this theme of like guilt and forgiveness that then they would then be able to take to Jesus and the cross and to us today. And so how do you, yeah, is that, is that what you see in how Leviticus is currently used or, yeah, or what? Yeah. So I'll just say at least in the Protestant realm of churches that I've had experience with and, uh, and in Protestant and evangelical scholarship, the primary lens is the Reformation lens that the problem is guilt, guilt, which requires a, a perfectly just death sentence and the solution is a, a substitutionary death row inmate to be executed on our behalf, and that that is Jesus. Now, you can have you know people that would uh, t- take issue with my terms uh, that I just used there, but the I think that's what's in most people's heads. The, the primary issue is uh, is that we. And this, for most Protestant world, is related to the idea of original sin. That we have this natural inherited guilt that can only be be dealt with uh, with with death. That's the the perfectly just consequence of our guilt. And so, what Jesus did uh, was was took that wrath, right? And so, what we are supposed to celebrate the beauty and significance. Is uh, is Jesus' self sacrifice, uh, but also God's. God is Abraham, and Jesus is, is Isaac. In in the picture, God's willingness to uh, kill His own Son in order to spare the world. So I think when people read John three sixteen, that God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son, uh, which rightfully, and we can talk about this in another episode, has some. <laughs> child sacrifice uh, overtones to it. Um, people think that is the that is the beauty of it. So we've talked just on psychological and moral grounds why we think that view is problematic. Anything that can lead people to a sort of divine child abuse view is problematic. Um, I've also talked, I've, I have an issue with uh, the guilt forgiveness peace being the primary lens, not because I don't think people do bad things or people are ever guilty of things or forgiveness is a beautiful concept. Um, 
but because I think it's been forced and we read we read the Bible then as if the the people writing this text primarily viewed the world through a through a guilt cultural attitude and they didn't. The Bible was written through and through th- with an from an honor shame culture. Um, and an, and as I understand it, part of the dynamics in the and honor <laughs> system uh, has a lot to do with cultural power. And that's part of why I've, I've made the case that the Bible is far more aware, self-aware of issues of power uh, than I think our reading of it because the guilt reading uh, flattens all of that out. Um, and, you know, it's I, I sat in a seminary class where at least half the class wanted to argue that all sins are the same. Because it changes our standing before God. Any sin would change our standing before God, right? So it's like, it doesn't matter if you killed somebody or if you like weren't completely truthful on, you know, in that conversation you had last, like that's the same because ultimately it changes your status of guilty, right? Like that's, I think where they're coming from with that. But then where does original sin, I know this probably isn't what we're going to talk about ultimately on this episode, but I think we need to set this up because we need to know why is, why is it important to rethink Leviticus and in what ways is Leviticus being used to support some of these ideas that aren't helpful and maybe kind of damaging. So where does original sin come into that then? If, if you're not guilty until you do something, then why does it even matter whether you, in their eyes, that's you brought up that seminary class, whether you killed someone or you told that lie last week, you were already guilty before that anyway. So is that is that further the further argument they're saying that it doesn't actually even matter if you did either of those things because you were already guilty, you're guilty because of original sin? Yeah, I think I think probably in a lot of people's heads that's. Uh those two things are interrelated. In in my view, as I just reflect on it in this moment, the the fruit of the original sin idea tends to just be really unhealthy, what I call anthropology, like really unhealthy views of ourselves, right? Um, I don't think anybody out there is, is arguing uh, that anybody in the world is perfect, right? <laughs> and I think that's, all that oftentimes many conservatives hear if they hear people push back against original sin or or even just argue for like, hey, but God loved the world that he created, right? Uh, and try to argue for like the, the beauty and goodness in intrinsic to humanity um, is it feels like somehow that's threatening this, you know, we've got to remember sin, like we've got to hold on to to sin and acknowledge sin kind of thing. And in my experience, uh, and I've said this before, it's not like my my secular or m- many of my friends who aren't Christian anymore, coworkers I have, almost all of them grew up in some sort of Christian uh, upbringing. Either their, their families were Christian, they went to church, whatever, and have multiple friends, uh, coworkers that all left that. So they know they know the world. And they didn't leave to like go live these crazy immoral lives and get away with whatever they wanted. Exactly. Um, they left because they actually felt like it was hurting them psychologically, uh, and and it was getting in the way of them trying to live uh, the most moral, uh, ethical life they could. Now, of course, people can argue about you know what is truly moral, 
Um, but I think to, to kind of tie off this, this original sin thing, what I've personally experienced is that, uh, the original sin piece just basically overloads this, this reformation idea that humans are, uh, are, are not to be over appreciated, right? Cause that leads to pride or arrogance or whatever. And to, to undergird that, we basically say that every single person from birth uh, deserves not just is, is, is wrong, is in the wrong, is guilty, but actually deserves death for that. And so we just got a story uh, from a listener emailed us today talking about how uh, she has decided to, to not take her, uh, her kid to church anymore. I think uh, her kid was seven because she doesn't want that view uh, that, that's derived from penal substitutionary atonement, that view that as a seven-year-old, he is so bad that somebody has to die. Yeah. Right? <laughs> she wants to protect her, her kid from that. It's that idea that like something's wrong with you from the beginning. You know, even before you feel like something's wrong with you, which most... I would say most adolescents, most, especially once you get to your teenage years, you already feel like something's wrong with you. Everyone struggles with that. And then it's, you're just suppressing that once you get into your adult years anyways, that you always have this feeling of like, something's wrong with me. It kind of just supports that idea. And so, yeah, it's starting from this place of like, you need to have some sort of bridge between you and God. You're, you're separated because something's wrong with you. Yeah. That was a really interesting letter we got from her. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian. I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> And I just think, uh, so I'm not an apologist, right? Like we don't do this podcast to try to, uh, get people to think better of Christianity or become Christians. But I do think if, (laughs) if those, for those people that are out there, uh, it's in their own best interest to come to terms with the fact that, that the guilt paradigm isn't the only, or even the, the primary uh, paradigm for understanding Jesus, the cross, the Bible, any of it, because I think there was a time, um, I think in the, in the purity era, the 1800s, 1900s, the, you know, sinners in a hand of an, of an angry God, like that actually was, at least in American culture, it was a very guilt driven society. And if you told somebody they were guilty, like that was a, that was a real motivator. And I just think part of what's happened is, 
is culture, at least our culture, our Western culture, in, in my view, has moved away and is continuing to move away from a guilt forgiveness uh, cultural paradigm. Um, and I think that's part of why the medical substitutionary atonement episode was one of our most popular, right? I think people are, are more and more younger people, new generations thinking, you know, th- being raised on uh, ideas about therapy, right? And how to do self-care and take care of your soul, right? And people are more and more terms, I think, thinking of mental unhealth and mental sickness and health and uh, and how to be healed and then becoming more aware of like socio-political uh, corporate uh, things. So the basically for the apologists out there, <laughs> I think part of the reason people have bec- many people have become disinterested in in Jesus is because Jesus has only been presented as the cure for your guilt. And you've got thousands and thousands of people out there that that's not their main concern in life <laughs> is what to do with their guilt. I'm not saying that's everybody. Um, and I'm not even saying that's why we should, we should have these conversations. Uh, but I have, I have noticed that to be true. And I've shared that just my own personal um, reflection is that of all the things that keep me uh, attached to Jesus and keep me uh, interested in Christianity, uh, that's, that's not even a piece of it anymore. Um, and it's, again, it's not because I want to go <laughs> live a life where I can like hurt anybody around me and not, f- and feel this like sociopathic apathy for it. Right. It's actually because I think in large part, I feel pretty well, uh, known and loved in my human relationships with my family and my friends. And, the God I believe in isn't wanting to kill me and actually likes me, right? <laughs> and so I don't go to bed at night uh, worrying about, you know, some divine, divine uh, decree. Yeah, and I think there's... Uh others or a lot of people even in that camp that would say well it's not just about the guilt it's about becoming like Jesus which I think is is more helpful as well but still at the root of all of it though or at least attached to that is going to be this piece of yeah but you need to have your guilty status changed by this belief in Jesus and then you can progress into this like sanctification becoming like Jesus. so it's still attached to that even though I would agree with a lot more of the like yeah become like Jesus sure that's great um it's that other, that piece that always comes attached to it or is always uh, precludes it. Okay, so we just talked a lot about atonement and uh, guilt and what's the role that Jesus plays in all of this. And this all came from talking about how have we seen Leviticus being used? How have we understood that in the past? But you want to present a different way to think about Leviticus, to think about what we're seeing there with these laws. I think, I don't really know what we're talking about here, and I'm, I'm eager to find out, but how is this, how is this better than, than that view? Yeah, I, so I don't know if, if I'll be able to answer that, but um, so, so we're sort of working in different directions, right? So the end conversation we're going to have is going to be, what is the meaning of, of Jesus, of Jesus's life, death, ascension, resurrection. And one summary for that 
both within the New Testament and and then in most of church history has been atonement is a big piece of that. Um, But atonement is language pulled from the Levitical temple system, right? So sometimes I'm using Leviticus to mean the book. Sometimes I'm using that as sort of a, a shorthand summary for the entire Pentateuchal, uh, textual inheritance we have talking about this system at which Israel getting to Sinai, building the tabernacle and having God come live in the tabernacle with them. That's the, that's the centerpiece of this. That's where you get all the laws. Uh, what was that thing doing? What was it for? What was the point? What were the assumptions? What were the problems that the tabernacle was solving? Uh, what were the concerns that the laws were addressing beforehand? Because whatever that thing was, that's where Paul and the New Testament writers looked to to find meaning by which to explain the significance of Jesus, right? So I'm fascinated with Leviticus and the Old Testament part just because it's old, fascinating literature in part because it's part of our Bible, uh, and then in part because that's where this, the source of our of our meaning is as Christians. And so, uh, you know, you asked sort of how well do people, or you asked how do I think most people understand Leviticus? And there are probably a lot of different answers. I think most of us hardly understand it at all. However we do understand it, most of us hardly do. I have been studying this thing as a pet project for a while, and I hardly understand this thing. If I think if you were to poll people on which part of the Bible felt the strangest, right, the most obscure, uh, the the most foreign to anything we would sit down and read on our <laughs> uh, during a morning over coffee, uh, the Book of Leviticus would would at least be in the top two or three, right? I feel like Leviticus one, Revelation two. Oh, number one, I've seen you're saying chapters. This is the this is the problem with Christian Christianese. <laughs> no, no, like first place is Leviticus, second place would be Revelation, probably. Yeah, totally. Like I said before, there's there's a couple layers here that I'm expecting will be new to most of our listeners. Some will be new to most of our listeners because the church worlds, the pastors, popular book authors podcasters, whoever, uh, or just you yourself listening, uh, most people in Protestant, uh, church simply have ignored the, the best and most renowned scholarship on the book of Leviticus for about four decades. So people have disproven this guy, Jacob Milgram, you know, prove is sort of a a uh, tough word to use in terms of like a field like biblical scholarship, but uh, has made a case for some some primary paradigms, which again, I'll, I'll sort of go through in a later episode of, of what the different sacrifices were, what they were doing, what they weren't doing, and some of the underlying assumptions. And other people have critiqued his work, and then other uh, people through those critiques have said, you know, I don't know about this, this, and this, but yeah, he was pretty much dead set here. And uh, one of the big arguments in scholarship for seemingly ever has been, what the heck does the word atonement even mean? (laughs) Uh, It comes from the Hebrew word kaper. You've probably heard 
preachers talk about it. If you listen to Bible podcasts, I'm sure you've heard people talk about it. Um, it's been a surprisingly difficult word to even know what it means. So when we say Jesus atoned for you, do we even know <laughs> do we even know what we're saying, right? And so part of what Milgram did years and years and years ago was to say that that cannot simply mean that God forgives you. Uh, and others have, have affirmed this. There's more going on there. And part of what he's saying is the primary meaning is, is decontamination, a ritual cleansing. Is that because it, it can't mean that because God was forgiving people before Jesus? That's one layer of many of the arguments, right? If, if they needed to be forgiven, then that was obviously happening before Jesus. So that would be, I guess, evidence that maybe something else needs to go on. Like decontamination was happening before Jesus and then it happens after, but it happens in different ways maybe. Yeah. And this is also complicated. So like there's even a line, uh, you know, I partly wanted to say, I understand how people come to the conclusions they do. And I'm not going to try, I'm going to try not to be overly critical, even though I have some pretty, uh, I'm pretty strong in some of my convictions about what is true. Um, but there's a line in the book of Hebrews, which we'll talk a lot about in these conversations, uh, because I think the book of Hebrews, or the, the letter, whatever this thing is, whoever wrote it, um, this is another one of the most debated uh, texts in the Bible. Um, the clearly the primary working paradigm for for this writer to understand Jesus was the tabernacle and the temple and whatever the heck was happening there is somehow going to explain to us what the heck just happened uh, with Jesus and but you get a line so chapters 9 and 10 are walking through this we'll, we'll talk about them later but comparing Jesus to to whatever these sacrifices were doing, comparing Jesus's death to that. And you get a line in verse 22, chapter nine says, and according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Right. That's the whole line about that's why you needed Jesus to die and spill his blood to forgive us. I mean, I think most songs in church are about that in the reformed, in reformed churches. Well, so... Right. So I think careful readers, uh, uncareful readers will say there was no forgiveness before Jesus. Right. Um, and, and then, you know, you can ask the question of like, so all those years and generations of history, God was just going to kill all them to help us. Right. That seems a bit self-centered. And then it seems like a careful reader would say, no, it was the sacrifice system that was set up. And as long as they did that sacrifice before God, then they were good and they were clean. Pause. Doesn't that make God seem like a pagan deity that needs blood sacrifice? I mean, both do, right? The New Testament version with Jesus and then the Old Testament version with the, it just needs to be animals that are the ones dying, but you need to bring it before my altar and appease me. Both seem like that. One's even worse because it's your own kid. Right. Yeah, so <laughs> I don't expect that our our <laughs> conversation in this series will 
lead us to any less weird ideas about God. <laughs> but I do think we'll find that the the weirdness, the foreignness, uh, was is so different from us. Uh, like all these kind of weird case studies we've looked at before, right? Uh, we'll see how differently the the writers were viewing the world. But I think what we'll see is it has nothing to do with appeasing an angry God. I, I've heard it. It's not even angry. I've heard it as like, it's almost like a robot. It's a God that is so just. He's not angry at you. He just has to, he's subservient to his justice. So he has to do this. But you're saying it's going to flip that on its head too. Yeah, possibly. So, and and I only brought up this this Hebrews example just to show sort of how complicated this stuff is. And because we brought up the the one argument in many, which we can get into of like, when did forgiveness happen? Who could be forgiven? Where did forgiveness happen? Was it just for Christians after Jesus or all that? And then you've, so you got this line in Hebrews. Um, but so the word uh, that's translated in, uh, in Hebrews 9 as forgiveness is aphasis uh, in the Greek. And it's the same word that, uh, remember in Luke 4, when Jesus goes into the synagogue and he opens the scroll and he starts reading uh, the sort of mashup of passages. Yeah, uh-huh. And it's the famous few verses that he ends up reading. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that word freedom, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, is a phasis. It's the same word translated as forgiveness in in the book of Hebrews. So word studies are hard in ancient languages. It's hard to sort of, uh, you can't boil words down to one particular meaning. But this is just another one to sort of problematize. You know, clearly this word doesn't just mean forgiveness. It means a more broad sense of release, liberation, freedom. Because what prisoners need is not to be forgiven. What prisoners need is to get out of prison, right? They need uh, to be liberated. And uh, so there's a, a sense in which, yes, maybe what the author of Hebrews is saying is that one of the central pieces uh, to be accomplished in in the Levitical system uh, was forgiveness. Uh, or maybe uh, there's a there's a broader release liberation accomplishment happening, and so what we'll walk through. I'm not arguing that forgiveness isn't in there. I'm not arguing that forgiveness isn't uh, significant either for us today or just a significant part of how the various authors were understanding it. But numerous scholars have have tried to to reassign the the place of guilt and forgiveness. Um, so even N.T. Wright, uh, for those of you who have read any of his work, you may have either heard him explicitly say or sort of started to more subtly feel one of the cases he's made and, uh, and, and popularized is that, and I think there's at least something to this, is that uh, the Jesus story, the gospel was largely a return from exile, and the reason Israel was in exile was they were being punished. And therefore, what it meant to be returned from exile was to be forgiven. And so there somehow has to be some accounting for that notion that what it meant for uh, to be forgiven, if you're a, a Jew living in Jesus's day, 
it's not just you and your sins. It's you waiting for God to say, okay, the entire nation's time is up. Uh, you can come out, uh, out from under Roman oppression or out from under the, the spiritual powers, whatever. Um, other Levitical scholars will talk about how one of the numerous sacrifices prescribed We'll go through, you know, that's part of why Leviticus is so weird and hard to read is you have these lists of sacrifices and then these specific sets of procedures, right? You have to take this part of the animal and burn it here and then don't put parts of the animal there. And that's what this sacrifice is. And you have to, this person has to do it and this person has to do it then. Right. And so it's so hard for us to understand what even any of that is talking about. And we'll see. There's been debate among scholars of even how to translate the words of what these sacrifices are called. So some scholars like Milgram will say that basically one of the sacrifices was was about forgiveness. The rest had nothing to do with that. So it's not saying that it plays no role, right? <laughs> it's not saying that sin, guilt, forgiveness is nowhere to be seen uh, in the Bible. It's just saying it hasn't been the entire uh, centerpiece that we've thought it's been basically, uh, since Luther. Um, so to get back to your insulation decontamination thing, just to kind of tease what I want to contribute fresh to the conversation, even though I know most Bible scholars won't even listen to this podcast. Um, if, if we were to follow sort of uh, the academic trail in, uh, in the last couple decades that frames, reframes it to say the issue isn't guilt, the issue is actual, actually this idea of purity, ritual purity, uh, uncleanness, which you remember seeing a whole heck of a lot of in the Old Testament, right? Um, actually, let me, let me pause for a sec. Nate, do you think ritual purity... Like, does that play any role in the way most you or most Christians, you think, think of Jesus, think of Christianity? Is that just a relic of Old Testament times? Is that just like legalism? Like, how do you think most people have have thought about that? Oh, I think it's pretty much entirely the relic of from the Old Testament, that this is how they, uh, God asked them to be they needed to be clean before entering his presence so there was more of that like ritualistic um aspect to to faith at the time so i don't know if it's if it would be viewed as like legalism but it was like how it was supposed to be at the time um and now i think we would say the point of all of that i've heard this so much in the reformed tradition um was to show that see those laws didn't actually work and that's why we needed jesus so if you still try to live that way, then yes, that's legalism now. But the point of why we why we saw that in the Old Testament was to show that, look, you can't actually be good enough. You can't be clean enough. You can't be any of these things enough. And if you're trying to earn that, then you're trying to make this about you and your good works and picking yourself up by your bootstraps. And it's really about God and what he did through Jesus. So that's sort of how I've heard that slash taught that. Yeah. Almost like God was petty and nitpicky back then just to prove a point that we can now glean from and be saved. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I actually, um, there's a book, uh, it's been on our sort of resource page. If you don't know, we haven't updated in a while, probably should, but we, we try to, uh, maintain a page on almostheretical.com for sort of recommended uh, resources. 
And there's a book by a really wonderful scholar and from everything I've seen, really wonderful person uh, named Fleming Rutledge. And she recently, I don't know, three years ago or so, uh, came out with a book called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. And this is, she's a scholar, and this is basically her life's work. She'd been working on this book for 10, 20 years or something. And I highly recommend it. I don't agree with everything in it, but it's a great book. I highly recommend it. It largely did sort of what we tried to do in short podcast form is just go through some of the different motifs for understanding uh, what Jesus meant or means. Um, But she had a (laughs) she had a footnote uh, and I've and I've never forgotten this. Uh, In just basically footnote number 69. So, you know, she's a a well-researched book. There's tons of footnotes and she just put this one in. Quote, I will not say much in this book about the theme of contamination, infection, or defilement. This concern is linked to the rites of purification, which played a part in the worship of Israel. And she quotes a couple passages in Numbers and Leviticus. Purification from ritual uncleanness plays little part in the New Testament except as a foil for the teaching of Jesus, who in his struggles with the Pharisees taught that, quote, what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man from Matthew 15 and did not hesitate to touch lepers. Likewise, Peter in Acts says what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And then goes on to talk about uh, another scholar uh, to, to, to support her, her little note here that in a, what is this? 600 page book on the meaning of Jesus Uh, she found that the entire concept of ritual purity, defilement, cleanness, uncleanness has nothing to do with it. Hmm. And uh, again, this is someone I respect, uh, respectfully disagree with her. And um, part of what I was starting to articulate a few minutes ago is that – this itch that was sort of bugging me when we did our atonement series before is I, I actually think if you had to, to say there's a, there's a primary metaphor, there's one overarching uh, way of understanding uh, what atonement was that both Old Testament and New Testament writers would have shared, it is entirely based on the idea of ritual purity and defilement. Um, so while this great scholar is writing a whole masterpiece on what the crucifixion means, um, and basically just wrote two sentences saying why she, she doesn't think, uh, she didn't use the term cosmic decontamination. That is a term, uh, you'll see in, in other bits of scholarship, why that has anything to do with it. Um, what this series is going to be about is showing, I actually think that's the, that's the main way to understand it. And all of the other pieces, including the, the guilt forgiveness piece, are subsidiary. They're, they're corollaries that come off of this main thing. So Okay, so wait, what did you call it again, the, the main way to see it? So I, I won't fully explain it here. <laughs> It'll take a long time to fully explain it. What's out there in, uh, in scholarship, at least— um, and I think probably slowly trickling its way its way out is the idea the term cosmic decontamination cosmic just meaning sort of insinuating this 
overlap world that includes the the spiritual realm of divine beings and the earthly realm of us human beings and animals and plants. Um, this idea of cosmic decontamination and and decontamination that's has to do with this defilement, <clears throat> defilement, cleansing, purity, impurity, all the stuff you see in Leviticus, but then also the stuff that pops up in the New Testament with lepers <laughs> and Yes, has to do with washing of hands and food and all of that, but it doesn't just get discarded as useless, right? It actually, the reason we're seeing it in the Gospels is it has some significance, something to do with clean, unclean, whatever, uh, that essentially, I think what's what's known and out there is that it has something to do with what has to happen to allow contact between human beings and God, or, or actually human beings and divine beings in, in general. Um, humans have to be decontaminated. That move, uh, a term that, uh, that Milgram used, and he was, oh, we'll talk about other scholars, but he sort of started in a very important ball rolling, was to say that if effectively what blood was, blood sort of the, the center of all this, what blood was doing in the minds of the authors was cleansing like a detergent. It was cleansing people from impurity. Um, so we'll get into how you could be impure according to the to the system. For instance, if you were near a dead body, uh, you could be impure, uh, but you haven't done anything wrong. You're not guilty of anything. Uh, but if you don't take that impurity lightly and you encroach upon God's space, then you've done something wrong. Then you have, have either just done something wrong that makes you guilty of carelessness, or you may actually be putting yourself in a position to die. And so the idea is there's some belief, some set of beliefs and assumptions, which aren't written out for us because every one of the writers and original uh, intended hearers would have just shared these assumptions uh, about what human beings are made of and what gods or or God, Yahweh, is, is made of and the fact that something bad happens when those two, two kinds of beings come into contact uh, with one another. So we'll get into that. Uh, remember the Nadab and Abihu story? And I've pointed out and, and wanted to go down the rabbit trail. We haven't yet pointed out. The story says is Nadab and Abihu are the, the two sons, the priest's sons, the high priest. And they're supposed to go in and serve in the in the temple. And it, they bring strange fire. Right. is sort of the literal uh, or unauthorized or not asked for fire. And they get burned up, right? And what I've tried to point out is is we typically read into that God was mad at them for doing something weird or unauthorized, and so God killed them. It's like the lightning strike. Right. I think the reason it doesn't say that is because everyone just assumed you knew if you didn't follow the right precautions and you came into contact with God, you will die. There's some belief going on, and we'll explore it, about what is prohibiting contact between uh, divine beings. So to me, that language, that idea of cleansing, uh, decontamination, 
And specifically, we'll get into some of the scholarship that's looked at how each sacrifice effectively decontaminates different people or spaces or objects uh, to allow contact to happen. I actually think this is the part that's new. That's me talking. You're free to say I'm an idiot. Uh, But I think a, a more accurate term to what the writers were believing was that blood acted as insulation. Uh, like an an additive top coat, or uh, I'll probably use this silly term a few more times, like a, a cosmic hazmat suit. Um, that the idea was that blood went on something to create an, an intermediary boundary, preventing direct contact. And I know this sounds all weird. It's only going to get weirder. you're right this isn't actually helping with the picture of god uh and helping me because that now you're saying like we actually need to have these special suits to go before this wizard of oz you know and it's just makes it seem bad but uh, but maybe it's maybe it's not so much but why does that i think there's something you're assuming there that makes you think that says something negative about god well i guess or it says something negative about us um, but maybe if I, if I think about it in terms of difference and not in terms of better and worse or, uh, wrong and right, um, maybe that helps a little bit. Let me try. Yeah, that helps a little bit because then it's, then it's like, it's almost like a different space. We need, we need to be set up differently to go into this different space. And if I think about that, like literally the word space, like a, a human can't just go and, roam about (laughs) in outer space we just can't do that because we're not built to be there we have to wear special suits and special equipment in order to go there and so if i if i kind of bring that back to this doesn't mean that like earth is better and outer space is is bad it's just that when we look at ourselves we're not we're not set up to function in a certain environment but we are in another environment maybe that makes it a little bit better Right. And so, you know, if you use that analogy, and I think it's it's apt to the case I'll be making, it doesn't s- say anything negatively either about humans, right? We don't have to feel crappy about ourselves because we can't breathe in space, right? We don't have to grow up with a low self-esteem uh, because, you know, we're restricted to our own atmosphere, um, nor does it say anything negative about God's character character or God's feelings toward us, that the facts of life simply are that humans need oxygen to breathe, right? So part of the, I think part of what I was hearing in you, the assumption is if there need, if, if these writers believe there needs to be a layer of blood to insulate us from God, it has something to do with because God needs something or God feels a certain way about us 
or because if there weren't blood, then God would do something to us. So I think some of that or some of all of that is happening both when we look at these weird stories, right? The Nadab and Abihu story or reading Leviticus. And then a lot of that is happening when we're thinking about Jesus. These are assumptions. And finding assumptions of authors is, in my view, the hardest and often the most important piece of doing good, careful reading. It's the hardest because it's the thing that no one ever takes the time to to write, right? <laughs> you don't say out loud the thing that everybody in the room knows to be true. Therefore, we have to go look be, behind the text to find breadcrumbs to piece together what everybody was thinking was true. But also it's the most important because everything is is built on that. And so I think one, one of the pieces of argument uh, is that the, the biblical writers had had a view of human bodies, of of earthly space, of divine bodies, which we've sort of teased at, but we'll get more into and like why Paul has has the view that he has that he writes to the Corinthians talking about how our bodies will be changed um, to to fit for both divine and and heavenly divine and earthly space. So that wasn't just we're going to get a six pack in heaven. <laughs> no, I th- I think uh, even though I never worked out a day in my life and <laughs> on earth. One thing we'll explore is I'm pretty sure, and I've never heard anybody else say this, uh, but I'm I'm pretty sure there, and I'm sure someone else has said this. I just haven't haven't found it uh, that there is a theme that you see in blood, in uh, <laughs> in smoke, uh, that there is this idea that there is a huge chasm between spheres, realms, beings, right? So there's there's a an existential, not like a moral chasm. But like we are just very different kinds of beings that live in different kinds of spaces. So th- this is more like if we were to discover, and I, I hope we do, uh, another life form in whether it's our galaxy or probably another galaxy, and then we were going to go like actually go to to go visit them, and they like let's say invited us, and we were going to go visit them, and then we come to find out even Mars has a different atmosphere than we do. So most likely they're going to have a different atmosphere than we have. We're going to need some special equipment in order to go and visit them. Plus there might need to be some like <laughs> figuring out the different cultures and different all that kind of stuff in order to make this actually happen. Whether they're coming here or we're going there, we're going to need to figure some of that stuff out in order to. I'm expanding upon the space uh, analogy because I like geeking out on this and because I'm trying to make it better. Yeah, I think the the part of the analogy that works is that there's some common ground that needs to be found, right? They're, both sides are going to have to do something potentially to find a way to, to be able to interact. Um, the The part where the analogy misses is I think so – We'll get into the details. I think the idea is that blood is a semi-human, semi-divine substance. And it's one of the rare substances that is sort of a both thing substance. And therefore, both parties can contact that substance. I, I think that's what's happening. And therefore, that's why I say blood acts as this kind of hazmat suit where God can come into contact with blood and humans can come into contact with blood. 
God cannot come into contact with humans. God won't die. Human, humans will die. Not because God's mad, because something bad happens in, in the minds of these writers. And similarly, Ugh, I think, I know. I still, this is rough, Tim. <laughs> it's weird. This is very confusing. So, And I actually think there's a thing, too, like, you ever wonder why why does God appear as smoke in the wilderness? I mean, I I guess I thought about it for a second, yeah, but I just assumed it was one of the many ways God manifests God's self to us. Yeah, I mean, there's so much weird stuff in the first five books of the Bible. It's like yeah, <laughs> you forget how many weird things you're you're just reading right over. But I think one of the the possibilities is that the logic underlying it. And this is related to sacrifice where you burn meat and the smoke goes up. Is I think, could be wrong, I think smoke is a part meat, part air substance. Because smoke is a thing that comes up from a burning flesh, a burning thing, material substance, into air as a kind of airy substance. Of course, that's not science, <laughs> right? Smoke is like carbon and whatever. Uh, but I think part of the idea is, so air and the airs and the heavens, that's the other world, mm-hmm. right? We are a part of the dirt, flesh, material world. I think part of the idea is that's another one of these intermediary substances that is half material, half immaterial, and therefore it's accessible. So... Basically, if we if we push pause here, it's just intro. We'll get into more weird stuff, but if if we're talking about sort of like what are we doing? Why are we? <laughs> why will this matter? Right. Um, one of the biggest, if you remember, one of the biggest questions that's been asked, and I think is one of the most important questions to ask in terms of one's theology of of the cross, is. It's, it's been encapsulated in the debate over whether to translate the, the word atonement, hilasterion, which is the Greek translation, whether to, to translate this as pro- propitiation or expiation. Have you ever, did you ever get in those battles? I've heard the word propitiation before. I've used that word before. I don't even know what the other word means. Yeah. So forget those words. Ignore it. That's the scholarly and slash Protestant versus Catholic debate version of of the question oh, that I so think, that's why i wouldn't have heard of the other one because i'm not a catholic exactly you were okay. uh, censored censored out of that ah. what i think the main one of the main questions is if not the main question is did jesus change something in god or did jesus change something in us or, or you could say does jesus change something in god or does jesus change something in us so in the penal substitutionary metaphor the, the primary meaning is that God is that Jesus changed what God is going to do to us or changed how God views us, right? Uh, the change happens not with us, with God. It actually, you know, we'll talk about transformation and sanctification later, but it's actually part of the, the beauty in that system is that the change has nothing to do with us. So we don't actually have to, to be transformed. We just need to be saved, right? We just need to be converted. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Versus views that have been more common in the uh, Orthodox Church and in the Catholic Church, that the primary change is in us, in people. 
and we can talk about what changes or how it changes or how it all works or whatever, but the primary change isn't us. To me, that's the biggest question. It's my, uh, you know, probably single biggest uh, grudge in this, <laughs> in this fight is to say, if, if Jesus and Christianity isn't about changing human beings, me and you and everybody else, if it's about changing God, then how is that good news? Right. But, you know, in that camp, they'll say God never changes. So how would it change God? Because basically, I think the way most people explain it, his justice, right? It's his perfect justice, his perfect holiness, because God, you know, cannot, uh, oftentimes said God can't even, like, stand in the same room as a sinner or look upon sinners, right? Um, but just God can't tolerate our sin is, is probably the more... <laughs> common uh, articulation and therefore because god is loving god has to punish sin right this is the like you're saying god's a robot that has to follow the rules of the robotics Uh, gotta follow the program right so in in that view uh god isn't changing simply we have gotten out of our you know proper decree and so we get this is the whole uh, view of imputed righteousness which if I haven't said this before, I think is false <laughs> and unhealthy. I was, expecting, I was expecting a much stronger word. Usually you're like, it's the worst heresy to ever touch a human's brain cell or something. I'm growing and maturing in Christ-likeness. <laughs> but okay. it's a really stupid idea. <laughs> But it's essentially, again, you know, some people say uh, we caricature their ideas. The combination of penal substitution and imputed righteousness, we're supposed to get the penalty. Jesus takes it. Jesus was supposed to get perfect love and reward from God for being great. And we get that. So right, Jesus's righteousness is imputed onto us. It's like somehow counted to us, right? This is the classic... Protestant than evangelical uh, articulation of uh, of the the Luther gospel. So if we reconnect, basically all I've done is just tried to like give a little tease outline to what I even just introducing the term cosmic insulation. What I think the belief was that blood was doing was insulating <laughs> insulating human beings to come into contact so that we could be in the same space as as God, so that we could be with, with God. That that's what the, the sacrifices were doing. That's what the tabernacle was for. That's what the laws were given to make sure happened well and safely. A whole offshoot of this entire series is going to give us a new paradigm for thinking about what the laws were even there for and what to do with them which an offshoot off of that will help us think of like, well, what do we do with uh, homosexuality as an abomination versus in Leviticus? Do they matter? Do they not matter? Do we throw them out? All that sort of stuff. It'll give us a new context to to understand and have that conversation right. in. So I think there'll be ethical things. But then one of the biggest ones is just, okay, so I'll ask you, Nate, if for now, barring any uh, real argumentation evidence, if you were to accept the idea that that blood was to give me it's like a it's like an intermediary safe room right it's a mm-hmm. it's a space station where the 
the Martians and the Earthlings can go meet on a space station with this like perfectly dialed in, oxygenated, like middle happy zone, right? Where both beings can... Did you see Arrival? I did. Okay, yeah. Remember when they would go to meet the... I can't remember what they called them. All I can think is the others, but that's lost. I haven't even seen it. I just know that. But uh, where they would go to that room, remember? And there was like the big glass window. Uh-huh. That's kind of the place. So the one creature can live on the other side. Yeah. And he can live on this side. But they can communicate. So picture that building. But then somehow the even better, I think the picture is there doesn't even need to be any glass. That's literally, it's a great analogy for what most of the book of Revelation is about. Is we won't need this thing anymore because we'll actually be able to be in direct contact, right? Mm. So... Uh, so the glass is gone. You have this perfectly whatever chemically organically arranged <laughs> space that both beings can dwell in. Is that propitiation? Is that expiation? Or should we even be having that argument in the first place? I mean, I guess either the atmosphere has changed so we're both able to be there or one or both of our survival systems are changed so we can be in this room, you know, the lungs for us and whatever the other being has. So I don't know. I don't know what changed there, but something changed. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about it. I think it'll give us a helpful lens to get towards, uh, sort of resolving that conflict. And then I think it'll help us understand where Paul, in some people's view, Paul's using this like guilt forgiveness paradigm all over the place. Some people don't see it anywhere. Some people see it everywhere. And then you have other places where Paul's talking about change and transformation, right? And uh, and I think this will help us sort of bridge the gaps between those and see that, in a sense, putting on a hazmat suit to be able to enter a space that you weren't able to before is a, is a kind of a transformation. Um, and it's, it's also, in a sense, not, right? Because you are still you. (laughs) Um, and so we'll get into what Paul thinks of bodies and all that stuff. So there's a teaser. I hope, uh, I hope you get you, Nate, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you. I hope you get as interested in this stuff from a, from a nerd level, from, uh, rethinking Christianity and, and theology level. Um, and I know you haven't had as much fun as I had with realizing just how out there to to our perspective how out there some of the views and ideas and beliefs and assumptions that the biblical writers had um but it's given me a strange joy is that too strong a word uh and maybe even comfort so ex- explain that joy really quick explain that comfort and that joy really quick because I get it a little bit. I want to be there, but does it, and I know we're over time or whatever, but I just want to know, does it give you comfort because it just tosses out like, oh, so it can't mean X, Y, and Z, the things that it's been used to say to hurt people? Or does it give you comfort because it actually gives you something to stand upon? Because I think where I hit a wall here is like, I this gives me comfort because it it makes it so that some of the ideas that I've taught before heard taught but often are are used to kind of create that in and out group can't you know can't be used anymore and i like that but it also leaves me with less to hold on to less to um to stand on i guess you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. so that kind of feels 
a little bit unsettling as well. Right. So <laughs> that's where, like, I just got to acknowledge, we've talked about this. I'm one of the people who doesn't mind being unsettled. Right. And you know what? I, in this realm, like, I, I actually don't mind that either. I'm just saying, I guess I'm playing, like, the role of the collective audience that would hear this and say, like, that's awesome. But now I know even less. And when I go to, like, and this is the one I can relate to. It's when I go to, like, talk to someone who is still in that world. I, I don't it creates just another barrier, I guess, to having a conversation because now I, now there's even less common ground to, to have a conversation on and to find some sort of place to start, start a conversation from. So that's, I guess what I mean when I say that. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to reflect on why I enjoy this and, and maybe have a better answer next week. Um, but it is part of, when you see new things, it gives you a new decoder ring to go back through the entire Bible and start understanding things you never understood before. Um, it lets you feel a little bit closer to these books and these writers that feel so distant most of the time, right? Um, but then it also makes you feel more distant because then when you're like, whoa, you believe that? I could never believe that. Um, I think, yeah, okay, that's what that's what it is because... Now it seems like it's one more thing that I need a Tim Ritter or a Tim Mackey or a NT Wright to, you know, a little, what was the trunk monkey? You know, like I need a trunk, a trunk Mackey to pop out and like have the little debate for me. And it's like one more thing that someone would hear and go like, wait, so you don't even think Leviticus is talking about, you know, guilt, forgiveness. Like you don't even think like, wow, you're even crazier than I thought. It's like, ah, no, the argument's there. I just need to pull out all this stuff, all these references, all, you know, to believe me, watch, you have to listen to this. You have to go read that. Like, it's just one more thing that I have to try to prove to someone or one more reason to abandon that conversation slash relationship slash whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess that's another another caveat I should give us. I'm I'm someone who uh, has a... Has a um, uncommon uh enjoyment of being unsettled right <laughs> uh i'm highly comfortable with uncertainty and i'm basically done with all of those argumentative relationships and debates this podcast is the only space um i'm not i'm not in those relationships anymore uh i'm not giving my energy to trying to defend my beliefs or whatever. So, uh, I, I'm not worrying about, and, and I know you, Nate, and I think it's probably typical. A lot of people we've, we've heard this from listeners. You, it's the struggle to be able to sufficiently articulate and argue your case. So you get intimidated or exhausted feeling like people with crappy arguments can run you over just cause they're like, you know, better at talking fast and sounding strong and, all that. Um, right. Well, and I have the burden of proof because I'm talking about something that's quote unquote different than the norm in our country and in uh, our, you know, circles that we're in. But yeah, no, that's exactly what it is. It's the, it's feeling like I don't, it's not so much that I, cause I don't have those relationships. I've chosen not to, not that I've cut all those people out of my life, but I've chosen to be very clear that I'm not going to have debates about about this type of stuff because I don't think it's healthy. It's not going to help the relationship. And ultimately I'm not trying to like take people down from their spot that they're at and something that's working for them and is good. Like I, 
you know, I, I, I say it all the time. Like I do the show, the show is for people who have already started the process of rethinking. I don't know that it's like a wonderful thing to send to someone who hasn't at all. I think it might actually not be the best place to start in some ways. Um, but so, cause I, I you know, I'm, I'm with you. Like I, I don't have those relationships or I've chosen to in those relationships that I do have that if I did push and we did talk, we would get into debates. I've chosen. That's not what, you know, that's not what friendship and relationship is going to look like anymore. Um, having, having debates and having uh, verbal disagreements about things where we talk it and hash it out. But yeah, it's just that, it's just that piece of like, I, I know that I couldn't go and like defend this or something. So it's just learning to have peace with the, the questions, the, un, the unknown or the, like, I know this, I I'm pretty sure like, this is what it is on this topic, this topic, this topic, but not necessarily being able to then go and regurgitate that to even to like, you know, friends that would agree with me or my wife or like anything. Um, and that's, that's tough. It's always sending someone a podcast to listen to or a, a book to read or something like that. And I guess that's, I guess that's fine. Well, the, the greatest area of uncertainty and where the the problematization is going to be the most, it's going to be the most impactful, feel the most urgent is when we, you know, we talked about how I think we need to be more honest about how different we are from Paul, right? It's because then if, if what we're going to say is, well, Paul or the author of Hebrews believed these things about human bodies and the earth and substances like blood. Therefore, this is what Jesus meant to them. And we don't believe any of those things. Then we have a, need to have a conversation about <laughs> what does Jesus even mean? <laughs> to us. Exactly. So that does... Or is there some universal meaning of Jesus? Right. So I know that feels scary to some. It, it has strangely felt liberating to me, at least in the last uh, year or so to the the more difference I see, the more confidence I've got to come out from under the conservative, just stay anchored, just stay anchored, like don't go too far, don't go astray. I'm like, wait a second, we're already out on a crazy limb. Like we are already so far from what these uh, these people believed. And, and then part of it is just like, just the world just seems bigger, you know? Like history has more color, um, I think what's been hard in a lot of the people that I've read or, or known, it's hard to admit how different we are from the ancients and respect their intelligence at the same time. Hmm. And so something I've, I've tried to do and I've come to really, like, really believe, not just try to do it because it seems like the nice thing to do, is really believe that the people who wrote these texts were as smart, if not smarter than all of us today, right? Their brains are probably far healthier without all the social media and tech and <laughs> mind numbing, uh, substances that they were imbibing on a daily basis. Uh, they were brilliant people engaging in brilliant works of, of art and they believed things. Sometimes I think maybe they sort of just had a, had a, a shared, mythology and maybe they didn't believe it literally right we've talked about that but other times i think they they really did believe things that 2000 years of observation on the planet have caused most of us to just think is crazy and both of those things can be true both of those things are true in my opinion mm. and that to me when when 
for those of us who are interested in the Bible, we just have to come to terms with the fact that we're doing a form of history at all times, right? <laughs> this whole thing is so old. Um, and to me, that means the whole project, this whole looking backward project, dealing with an ancient text project, uh, has some, some new color to it. And I've been, been liberated with a responsibility, uh, to, to be more thoughtful about translating the meaning of these texts and the meaning of the, the Christ event, uh, to, to us today in a way that is, is almost the opposite of this, um, penchant, which I was involved with for years to just be biblical, right? That, that's what I mean with the whole stay anchored, stay tethered. It's just keep the same ideas, um, part of the liberation is to say, no, I know you, guy at the conservative seminary, are never going to hold to this idea about, say, blood as as cosmic insulation. So don't tell me <laughs> that the goal here is to to simply be biblical. Um, that's that's the argument. But for me, just my own personal life, it's been liberating to just see, like, oh yeah, there've been enough of those, enough of those moments, right? To just be like, oh yeah, okay, we've got some more creative endeavors on our hands, less a straining to stay in the safe confines of, of an orthodoxy, right? To stay in that tradition. Um, and last piece I'll say, you know, you talk about the, the irony, and many people point this out. The, what you express is that you feel like you, the burden of proof is on you because you're coming from outside the norm, Right. And so what a lot of people try to do is just show how much of the norm of Protestant Christianity or of evangelicalism in the West is not at all in line with the norm of most of the, the church, uh, let alone Judeo-Christian history. Um, and to, to take that burden of proof off of you and sort of put it put it back in the other direction. But this does that even more so if we can say that like all the way back to the the assumed audience of these texts in the Hebrew Bible, right? At least probably 2,500 years ago. Um, they were believing X, Y, and Z about the world. Uh, don't tell me that your penal substitutionary atonement is is the limits of my theological imagination, right? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so. All right. I like it. Um, I am a little bit more interested than I was before this conversation. Yes. And I like having these real, I like having these real world discussions at the end. Plus maybe the next time we have one of these chats at the end, our little real world discussion can be about whether or not we have to, or maybe this isn't an utterly heretical episode, but whether or not we need to believe this about God in order to like, function in life be a christian i don't know maybe we could talk about it a few different ways but yeah i just wonder do we need to try to have this view that these writers had or is it better to understand that that's what they had so that we don't misuse the bible but actually hold a different view in order to function in our culture and society which i think it is but okay anyways we gotta end this thing thanks for spending some time with us if you want more information about us the show you want to get in contact with us share your thoughts your story questions anything like that you can do that at almostheretical.com and also we have a second podcast called utterly heretical we played a sample episode of it last week episode 74 of the show 
And we have lots of other episodes on there where we talk about how we changed on the LGBTQ topic and uh, parenting after deconstruction. How do we do that? Do we send our kids to Sunday school? Like, what are we supposed to do? And the Holy Spirit. How do we feel about that? It's honest, raw, unedited. You can get all those at patreon.com slash almost heretical. All right, we'll catch you next time. Peace out.